Again, if you have your Bible, turn with us to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 20. And Paul says this, For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as, I, as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Chapter 13, verse 1. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right. That we, that we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad that when we are weak and you are strong, your, rest, your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. This is God's word. Well, good morning, Cross Point. I hope you're having a good week, having a good weekend. Uh, next week, we're actually looking forward to wrapping up our series in 2 Corinthians. We've been in this series since the first week of February, and next week uh, we will wrap it up. And uh, we want to invite you to join us to an outdoor communion service. Uh, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together because we've been socially distanced. We cannot do that. And so we're going to conclude our sermon series next week here at the YMCA, outdoors, bring your lawn chairs, uh, and we are going to have a time of worship, uh, the Word of God together, and communion. It'll be a shorter service. We realize that at 10 a.m. at the end of August, it's still quite hot in Florida, uh, but we really value the time to take the Lord's Supper in fellowship with Him. Uh, so I want to invite you to that next week as we conclude 2 Corinthians. And um, I want to pray for us. There was a, a verse in that song that Josiah just sang that really, uh, really stuck out to me uh, to, to be a prayer of mine for us today, and that, that God would bind our hearts to His Word. So would you join me as we pray that the Lord would bind our hearts to the Word of God? Lord, we need Your Word. We know that it is living inactive, that it is sharper than a double-edged sword, piercing joint and marrow. We know that the Word of God is breathed out by you and is useful for training and reproof 
and correction and God bringing about righteousness in our lives. Lord, I pray that your word would be bound to us right now. That there is only a work of your Holy Spirit that can take your truth and bind it up in our lives so that we are bound up in you. Help us, Lord. We need you, Lord. I, as a messenger of your truth, a vessel of your mercy, a jar of clay, Lord, I need you that I would share this message, Lord, with the assurance and conviction that Jesus is Lord above all else. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So at this point in 2 Corinthians, Paul's patience was running out. You can see it. Paul is essentially asking the question, how long must I be patient with you? If I have to come to you a third time, it's not your, my patience that you're going to get, but the severity of judgment. We know 2 Corinthians is Paul's final letter to the church. We also know that Paul is dealing with them more harshly than he has in the past. And part of Paul's harshness is to warn the church in Corinth. You know, Paul has had long labors with this church. It's a jacked up church in need of the gospel. It is the church gone wild, but Paul loves his beloved church. And he is ministering to them God's grace. And part of ministering to them God's grace is ministering to them a warning. And his warning, he says, if I come again, I may not spare them. Last week, I was in the small town of Offerman, Georgia on Tuesday. I drove from Orlando to uh, this border town in the backwoods of Georgia, just on the border of the Florida and Georgia line. And I went to the funeral of Larry Tyre. Uh, Larry is the father of Chris, our kids director. And Larry passed away last week. So it was important for me uh, to grieve with the family, having lost my dad just uh, not even two years ago. Grieving with those who have lost a parent uh, is incredibly important uh, for me. So I was able to be with the family. I left early that Tuesday morning and got there in time for the funeral services. Uh, my plan was as I would join the funeral service with them, I would also join the graveside. And then there was a wake where we'd have lunch together afterwards where I'd be able to, to uh, just comfort the family, be with the family, be present with them even get to know some of Chris's and Kevin's family while I was there. And my goal was is I would be home by dinner time. And so uh, I wanted to make sure I beat the Orlando rush hour traffic and try to be home at 5 p.m. Because if I wasn't home at 5 p.m., then I really knew that it would take a little while longer to be home if I was stuck in that rough rush hour traffic. And so as I left the wake in got in my car and got home, I was doing the math in my head and thought, if I'm going to get home by 5 p.m., I've got to make up some ground. And one of the best places of making up the ground was on these backwoods Georgia roads where there was no one driving on them. So uh, I was driving along this backwoods Georgia road, and, and the lead foot was down. And then in the distance of this empty road, I saw this black SUV heading in my direction. 
And as it got closer, I could see the lights on top of it. And then I immediately started to slow down. And then as we passed, this police officer did a U-turn. And before even he could turn his lights on, I knew I'd been caught. And so I just went ahead and pulled over. <laughs> Turned his lights on, came next to me on the, on the driver's side. And he says, good afternoon, sir. Can I see your driver's license? And I showed him my driver's license. And I could tell he was looking in the vehicle. He could see my suit coat. He could see some of the things that were just there from the funeral service I was at. And he asked uh, where I was going in such a hurry. And I said that I was leaving a funeral. I was from Orlando and uh, wanting to get home in time for dinner. He said he could understand that. I'm thankful that he could. And so uh, he asked, who passed away? may I ask? And I said, well, it was, uh, he was the father of one of our church members. I'm a pastor in Orlando. And he said, oh, sorry to hear about that. Then he looked at me in the eye, said, pastor, I said, I'm going to give you a verbal warning. He said, but the next person who pulls you over may not be so nice. And I said, thank you, officer. I would greatly appreciate that. And I will, I will go the speed limit from here on out. He said, I would recommend it. Now, when I got that warning, I heard the same warning from the Apostle Paul. When I come again, I may not spare you. If you're, going the, not, if you're not going the speed limit next time you're getting pulled over, the police officer may not be so kind. He may not spare me. And Paul, he has had his patience with the church of Corinth. And he knew it was the time, not that he was not going to show God's patience or Christ's patience, but part of Christ's patience is to show his judgment so that the warning may be fully heard and met by those who are hearing it. Paul wanted the church of Corinth to hear his message. This rebellious minority in the church of Corinth had rejected his authority. They've rejected Christ's message through the Apostle Paul, which meant they rejected Christ's authority, which meant their lives, their eternal lives, were in jeopardy. And so Paul was giving this stern warning. If I come again, it'll be the severity of Christ's judgment that you will receive. There's a big reason that Paul wrote this letter is that he wanted those who were walking in rebellion to repent. Because there's an unmistakable truth of the life of a Christian that he wanted them to hear, to know, to believe, to get down deep into their bones, that they would live it out. And the message was this, and this is the big idea for our time together. It's where Christ is, there's a life of growing holiness. Where Christ is, there is a life of growing or progressive or continual pursuit of holiness. And this is something that lacked in the church of Corinth, and this is something that the Apostle Paul wanted to pastor them through. So we're going to see this in three segments as we walk through the Scriptures today. We're going to see the discipline in chapter 12, verse 20, through chapter 13, verse 4. 
We're going to see the test in chapter 13, verses 5 through 8. And then finally, the restoration in chapters 13, verses 9 and 10. So as we look now at the discipline, let's see how Paul is addressing it and why he's addressing it. A a, a life of growing holiness is necessary for the life of the believer because it authenticates the life of the believer. Growing holiness does not save us, but growing holiness is the evidence or or the authentic signature that we are saved. And in order to see the church being built up into maturity, Paul really believed that the church needed to be disciplined. Up to this point, he had been patient with them, but some of the same themes of their problems or their mishaps was shown and evident throughout his time with the church of Corinth, and Paul could not let it go. We see that he addresses discord, division, slander, gossip, jealousy, quarreling, anger, These are things that Paul said do not belong in the church and should not be a part of the church's growing maturity, should not be of the pattern of unbelief that exists within a church if the Spirit of God is truly working in them. There is also sexual immorality and impurity that we see in 1 Corinthians that is carried over where Paul says he still is grieving these things. And it's this sexual immorality that Paul has admonished the church to repent from. But rather than repent, they continue to celebrate. And while the majority of the church have now repented and are following the Apostle Paul, there's still this rebellious minority that Paul says he is going to come and he is going to discipline if they will not turn. You know, my kids know when their mommy is home with them all day and she has to call me at work that if daddy has to come home, trouble is upon them. If daddy has to come home and deal with their misbehavior, they're not listening to their mom, then they are in serious trouble. So here's the way it typically goes. One of the kids isn't listening to their mom. Their mom is at their wits end. God bless my wife. She's a wonderful mother. My kids are good kids, but certainly there are some points where they're acting inappropriately and not listening to their mom. And so I get the phone call, and I hear her voice and the frustration in it. And I immediately say, put so-and-so on the phone. I'm not naming any names here, my kids. Put so-and-so on the phone. And once I get on the phone, I say to so-and-so, what's going on? And they try to state their case. And I say to them every time, is that any excuse to not listen to your mom? No, they know it. And then I say to them, if mommy calls me one more time and you're still not listening to her, then this evening or this afternoon or whenever I get home, there's going to be judgment. There's going to be trouble. And so my kids immediately know, and then they start acting the way they need to act. Well, Paul is saying, when I come, I'm going to gather the witnesses that are necessary. Three witnesses, that was what was necessary in the judgment of the court of God's law. This is why Jesus quotes, where three or more are gathered, 
I am there with them. It's not just a touchy, feel-good message where three or more are, there I am with the church. It is where the church is giving judgment upon someone, I am there with them. Because Paul knew with the testimony of these three witnesses that he could bring charges against those who were rebellious and were walking against the will of God. And Paul's aim on this third visit wasn't to see this rebellious minority discipline, but to see them walk in repentance. So rather than coming and disciplining them in severity, he could celebrate that they have turned to the Lord and they've walked in repentance. Let's talk about church discipline for a moment. Throughout the history of Israel and the church, the Lord and His people have a collective and unmistakable mark that the church and God's people are disciplined by God. This is because it shows that God loves them. In fact, the book of Hebrews says, do not reprove God's discipline, but rejoice in it. Because where God disciplines you, it shows that you are his children. For what father does not discipline the children that he loves? And Paul knew that God loved his church. And those who would receive his discipline were those who were genuinely his children. Church discipline throughout the ages has taken different forms, but what we see in Scripture is that when church discipline is not heeded, then those who are walking in rebellion must be publicly condemned. Meaning that sometimes those who are walking in rebellion and bringing so much destruction to the body of Christ, so much harm to God's people, that they are brought forward and said that this person is walking in un belief. Now the purpose of church discipline is never tearing down but building up because even in making these public accusations known, the hope is is that this person would heed the warnings from God and that the church body would rally around them and love them to where they are grieved into repenting. And this was Paul's hope to see for his church that they would certainly be grieved into repenting. Jonathan Lehman, he writes, when churches fail to practice church discipline, they begin to look like the world. They're like the salt that has lost its saltiness, which is only good for being trampled upon. They are no witness at all to a world lost in darkness. You see, you understand the purpose of the church And it's to proclaim the excellencies of the God who has brought us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And the purpose of church discipline is that the church would not lose its saltiness, that it would not be trampled on, but that the world, this lost and broken world, would not see lost and brokenness in the church but they would see God mending his broken people together and them clinging to the hope of salvation in Christ. And that their salt would be salty, that it wouldn't lose its flavor, and that the world would be redeemed by the power of the gospel through the church. This is God's chosen means for making his son Jesus known is the church. So it was important that the church remain faithful to its purpose. And for the church to remain faithful to its purpose, discipline would be necessary at times. Next, we see the test in verses 5 through 8. 
There's a faith test that Paul asked the church to do with the eternal life stakes at play. Wouldn't it be great if there were a test, a tried and true way to know that we are assured of salvation? You know, with heaven and hell that weighs in the balance, wouldn't it be amazing if we knew we were in? Well, Paul doesn't really make that question known to them, but he asks that they would make known that Christ is in you. Is Christ in you? He asked the church. He says in verse 5 of chapter 13, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Christ Jesus is in you unless you indeed fail to meet the test. It's Christ in you. He's saying to the church, examine the authenticity of your faith right now. Is it genuine? As I went to the funeral for Chris's father last week, as the preacher was giving the sermon and there was a there was a casket in front of him with the body of this man who had just passed away. He pointed at the coffin in front of him and he said, the only one who could answer for Larry Tyre before God is Larry Tyre. Because God has appointed man to live one time and then judgment. And as we examine our faith, we realize that the eternal life stakes are at play. Is Christ in you. I think the danger of the church in Corinth is that they had an assumed faith versus a real faith. They made some assumptions that they had received Christ and that Christ was in their hearts, but they didn't have a tested faith. That's the danger of an assumed faith. It's not a tested faith. And one of the greatest dangers of an untested faith is it's not real. It's not genuine. It's not the, the real thing. We're not really saved. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. As a father, I know that I won't be able to answer for my children's salvation. To some degree, I bear responsibility for it, but they bear the weight of responsibility. So as a father, it's important that I ready them for that day that they would be found faithful in Christ Jesus. As a pastor, I have that same responsibility with you. That you would examine your heart. That you examine your faith. Now, we don't test our faith in order to beat ourselves up with guilt and condemnation because as we test our faith, we've got to realize, number one, that sanctification is a lifelong process and it does not happen overnight. You hear me? I, so many days, am so disheartened because I can't zap myself and all of a sudden become a perfect person, <laughs> right? How many of us get filled with that frustration? And we don't question our faith in order to, to have this internal fear of always, always being found guilty, but we question our faith in order to see the authenticity of Christ. And the second thing that we see as we question our faith is that sanctification or a life of growing holiness demonstrates salvation to be authentic. I said it earlier. It's the signature of Christ's salvation. It's how you know it's authentic. D.A. Carson writes a stern warning for us that live in America. He says, There are millions of professing believers in North America today 
who at some point entered into a shallow commitment to Christianity, but who, if pushed, would be forced to admit that they do not love holiness. They do not pray, do not have sin, do not walk humbly with God. In other words, they have a professed faith, but not an authentic faith. And if that's millions of Christians in America, I can't think but how many of those millions of Christians, or maybe just one, maybe just two, maybe a dozen, might even be watching this sermon right now and sitting in the pews of our church on a regular basis because we have an unexamined faith, which leads to an unauthentic faith. Paul's hope for restoration wasn't that the church would take a test and build themselves up with uh, beat themselves up with guilt and condemnation, but they would examine their hearts and cry out to God for hope. Because that's what an examined heart does. The last thing we see is restoration. Restoration, verses 9 and 10. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come I may not be have to be severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Building up and not for tearing down. I rejoice when I'm emptied and you're filled. I rejoice when I suffer and you see the suffering for Christ's sake and you become a follower of Jesus. I rejoice when I go without so that you can have this is the way Paul was spent for the church of Corinth. This is the way he built up the church. He gave himself for her so that the glory of God would be manifest in his life and the church would be a believing lighthouse of the gospel. I don't do it to tear down, he says, building up, building up, building up. Remember where Christ is? There's a life of growing holiness. If only your lives would grow in holiness, I would spend myself more and more and more and more. In Ephesians 4.11, Paul says to the church, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Listen, for the building up of the body of Christ until we attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are grown up in every way into Him who is head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined together, held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it has built itself up in love. There's an upbuilding that Paul is admonishing the church for. And it's not just an individual upbuilding, but it's a corporate one. One in which you are called to be built up in Christ and growing in a life of holiness so that the church around you is also upbuilt in Christ and growing in the life of holiness. So important for us. And then I want to leave us with this application. It's the chief application, I believe, from this passage. 
Certainly there are a lot more things that we could glean from this passage, but there's one takeaway. Examine yourself. Examine yourself. Church, we must lay bare our hearts before the Lord so that we can allow our hearts to be transformed. When we read the Bible, may it just not our eyes being gazed upon our, our eyes gazing upon the scriptures and reading the words, but may we allow the words of God to search our hearts. Search our hearts. We don't read the word, the word must read us. Examine yourselves. I want to be found faithful. Being found faithful starts with allowing the Word of God to pierce joint and marrow, penetrate our hearts. And where we allow the Word of God to do its work, we will find, and I promise you it's right there in these words, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. You don't have to be afraid of it. Some of us are so afraid of this this examining of our hearts because we have this assumed Christianity. We don't want to find out the news. We don't want to hear that we've not been walking in the truth. But there's grace here for that. Because where we are willing to examine our faith, I really believe we will see a genuine faith. Because if you're willing to examine your faith, listen, if you're willing to examine your faith, it's part of the evidence of God doing His work in you. I want to test our faith with the words of God. I believe we have to take this test in two parts. We have to ask two questions. Question one is about doctrine. Question two is about life. What do we believe and how do we behave? Belief and behavior, doctrine and life, orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Uh, I tried to get theological there and it didn't work very good. Doctrine and life. Jackie Hill Perry says, guard your heart like your life depends on it because it does. Because it does. L doctrine. What do you believe? Now, I want to ask this in the sense of, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross for your sins? That He is the eternal God before the foundations of the world? That God sent Him, born of the Virgin Mary, to live a perfect and sinless life and die a criminal's death for you on that cross? Is that what you believe? And did, was he buried and did he raise again on the third day so that you could have his inheritance, so that he died for what you deserve and you receive eternal life, which only he deserves? That's important. Now I want to go a little bit deeper as it relates to doctrine. And I want to turn us to the book of 1 John. 1 John says in 5-6, in chapter 1-5-6, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. That God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we see, say we have fellowship with him and we, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we say that God is light, but yet walk in darkness, aren't we living antithetically to the way that we believe? And we have to not question just our behavior, but our beliefs. Do we really believe that the Word of God is true? 
If so, then why are we walking in darkness? The second verse we see in chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You know, the world is really good at calling sin other things. I missed the mark. I didn't behave well. I made a bad choice. I made a mistake. I made bad decisions. But is your sin really sin? Is it really a grave offense against the holiness of God that's deserving hell for eternity? It's not just, did we do a corrupt thing, but are our hearts corrupted? Have we disbelieved and disobeyed God? Have we, created treason, have we caused treasonous rebellion? If we say we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The second thing I want to ask is about life, doctrine in life, belief and behavior. Am I growing in Christ-likeness? Scott Hafman calls it a life of growing holiness in Christ. Am I growing in that? Is it authenticating my life? 1 John 2, 4 through 6 says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not within him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected, sanctified, growing. Not perfect, but perfected, growing, being made perfect. God's at work. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Who's he? Christ. Is there a conformity to Christ? Is there a Christ-likeness? You see, we don't just say that, we, we don't gravitate to our belief by, by saying that I made a decision one day, or I was baptized, or I go to church. We, we really understand the authenticity of our belief because it's worked our, itself out in the way that we live, in the way that we behave. Now, I'm not talking about moral behavior. I'm not talking about saving yourself with morality. That doesn't work. That's hellbound. Try as hard as you want to be as good as you can, and you're just going to fail because you need Jesus. But what I am talking about is transformation. He's renewed you from the inside out. He's redeemed you. You've been bought with a price. You've been made new because Jesus is your Savior. You worship Him. You live your life for His glory and honor. Examine your hearts. Where Christ is, there's a life of growing holiness. You know, um, it was uh, not too long ago, uh, my wife... Uh, had told me that I started snoring. I didn't believe her. Um, I, I, I don't snore. You, you kidding me? And then if my kids are staying the night in my room, which happens sometimes, they're waking me up in the middle of the night saying, Daddy, you're snoring. I'm, you're, you're full of it. I'm not snoring. You, you're, you're, not, you're not hearing that come from me. And so I lived in denial of this snor snoring. And then my wife says, well, I've got proof. I, where, what proof do you got? She says, I got a video. I'm like, the video's dark. You can't even see anything in the video. How do you know that's even me? That's, that's not me. And I wanted to live in denial. I didn't want to see the video. And now, well, the evidence has been presented and two or three witnesses have said, well, you're snoring, Dad. 
I've had to realize that I'm snoring, examine my heart. Now there's some things I can do to get healthy and allow my life to, to be in a good space so that you know, snoring is a symptom of greater problems. And those are things that I need to heed with that warning. But we're so afraid of taking the test because we don't want the obvious to be true. Can I tell you that God is bigger than your sin and your assumed Christianity? He's bigger than that. He wants for you to be redeemed. Man, stop fighting him. Let him do his work. Let him show you that your faith is inauthentic so he can authenticate it. Let the Spirit of God transform you. I plead with you, church. Examine your hearts. America, we have a fundamental problem. David Wells says it great as it relates to the American evangelical church. He says the fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. Like, like there, there's no reality of God on the church today. His truth is too distant. His grace is too ordinary. His judgment is too benign. His gospel is too easy. And His Christ is too common. Hey, May that not be true of this church. May that not be true of our lives. May God be the center of everything that we are and say and do. May there be a recovery of Him in our hearts and lives. That's why we take the test. That's why we examine our hearts. It's for the recovery of God in all things that we would be made new. So what does that leave us today? Is Christ in you? Take the test. I want you to take the test. Read those passages in 1 John. Take it. And here's the application after you take the test. Maybe you take the test and you say, yeah, thanks be to God. I'm falling after Jesus. Good chance you're going to say, I'm, I'm a work in progress and I need to grow. Maybe you take the test and you're like, I, I, I'm not. I'm not falling after Christ. Sanctification is not a part of my life. Where do you go from there? Well, you go where Paul's been telling the church to go. Repentance. Look to Christ. Cry out mercy, mercy, mercy. Because there is a wellspring of grace in your time of need. 1 John 9, right after one of those warning passages, he says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Take the test. Confess your sins. Watch God's faithful, redeeming work transform you from the inside out. He will make you a brand new person. For those who find that you've been falling after God, you've got some stuff to confess too. Confess it. Watch Him transform you. He loves you so much that He won't let you stay the way you are right now. That you would be salty salt that the world does not trample on, but the world tastes and sees that the Lord is good for it. Let's be that. 
following after Christ. Where Christ is, there's a life of growing holiness. And we need him so that we can grow to be more like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us, Lord, help us. Help us grow in you right now. God, I pray against the fear, against the fear that we might have in doing introspective work on our hearts, of it examining ourselves. God, I pray against that. God, I pray that we would delight ourselves in opening ourselves to you while we know it's a hard work and we know that surgery is being done. We know that, God, you're healing us. You're transforming us. You're restoring us. You're building us up. Lord, help us take the step today, this week, to examine ourselves so that we can see in our lives that we have a life of growing holiness. It's not because of anything what we've done. Because you have saved us and your Holy Spirit is transforming us. And we know, God the Father, you have given us salvation and eternal life, eternal security. We ask this in Jesus' name.